Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Fifty years ago this week, Soviet tanks crushed the Prague Spring. There were a lot of casualties, but probably the biggest cultural casualty was the destruction of Czech New Wave cinema. In this podcast, broadcast earlier this year on the BBC, I tell the story of that artistic movement and how the spirit of those filmmakers wasn't entirely snuffed out. Totalitarian governments sustain themselves through violence and terror. People who live under totalitarian governments sustain themselves through compromises made with the existing order. Artists who live under totalitarian governments sustain themselves by making work that slyly mocks their rulers and the more egregious compromisers with the regime. They press at the edge of the permissible. And if some of their number, or at least functionaries, who are sympathetic to them, rise in the propaganda bureaucracy, as happened in Czechoslovakia in the 1960s, you have a cultural miracle, the Czech new wave in cinema. The films created in that tiny country which no longer exists were more than just high points of the last golden age of European cinema. They were calls to arms to the youth of Czechoslovakia and by the transitive property of culture, the youth of the world, to stand up to oppressive regimes and, more importantly, not to be ground down by conformity to them. They were messages that were heeded because the creators of these films had a unique understanding of how to survive the vicissitudes of history. All of the Czech New Wave's protagonists had been cheated of normal years of growing up. They had been born before World War II. Most of them were born before Hitler engineered the Sudeten crisis. They were children under Nazi totalitarianism and entered adolescence in 1948, just as the Soviet coup brought Czechoslovakia under Stalin. They were first-hand observers from an early age of the reality of the worst in people and were well-placed to mock it expertly. Milos Forman, the best known of the dozen or more Czech New Wave directors, is a good example. One day in 1940, the Gestapo arrested someone in his hometown who was marginally involved in the resistance. They demanded from this man names of associates in that special way the Gestapo had. To make the pain stop, the man mentioned another acquaintance. The acquaintance was Foreman's father, who was arrested, deported to Buchenwald, his mother deported to Auschwitz. They did not survive the war. Milos was taken in by an uncle. He was just eight. Other Czech New Wave directors had similar stories. Foreman's screenwriting collaborator and former schoolmate, Ivan Passer, came from an upper-middle-class family. After the Soviet takeover, Passer was forced to leave education and learn proletarian skills. He had to work as a bricklayer and ditch digger for years. The filmmakers of the New Wave were already in their 20s before history cut them a break. Khrushchev's 1956 speech denouncing the cult of Stalin cracked open the Soviet totalitarian apparatus a little. The men and women of the Czech New Wave were either at the country's elite film academy by then or beginning their apprenticeships as directors in what was basically a propaganda mill of a film industry. But now there was the possibility of doing something more creative. They had a supportive studio in which to work. In the West, the studio was the enemy. In Prague, the massive Barandov studio provided almost limitless resources and excellent technical crews. 
Barrandoff was run by the state, but as Foreman was fond of saying, state ownership of the industry can, indeed, be ideal, provided that the state, or at least its film agency, is run by philosophers. The Barrandoff managers and those who censored film scripts may not have been philosophers, but they were Czechs, and at least understood that mockery and dark humor was a national characteristic, and so let these qualities appear in film scripts. The filmmakers began a conspiracy. A conspiracy against stupidity, Ivan Passer called it. Socialist realism was the aesthetic of Stalinism. They took that realism and told stories of ordinary life that were funny and showed in depth how the experience of communism deformed people. They made war films that sanded away the heroic myths of resistance to the Nazis and were easily seen as allegories of Czech life under communism, compliant and conformist. People's moral sensibilities excised in order to get just a little something extra from the state. Socialism with a human face was what the reforming government of Alexander Dubček said it was trying to create in 1968. Cinema with a human face was what the new wave directors had been creating for the best part of the decade. Literally. Foreman was a pioneer of using real people as well as actors in his films. The faces the Czech audiences saw were recognizable to them as the schoolmaster or bus conductor or factory girl. The aesthetic qualities of the conspiracy against stupidity were quickly recognized internationally. Foreman's film, Loves of a Blonde, was nominated for the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar in 1965. In 1966, Jan Kadar's The Shop on Main Street won the award. Foreman was nominated again the following year for The Fireman's Ball, and the year after that, 1968, our fateful year, Yuri Menzel's closely watched trains walked off with the prize. Menzel's film is a beautiful little comedy set in the sanded-down Czech New Wave version of World War II. It's about a young railway clerk trying to get through life, doing as little work as possible. He's also trying to lose his virginity. In the course of the film, he discovers a courage to resist he didn't know he had. It was a film that spoke to people contemplating the barricades everywhere. Czechoslovakia pushed itself into the self-involved consciousness of American youth in 1968, just as American culture pushed itself into the consciousness of Czech youth. Young people today, people in their 20s whose parents may not even have been born when these events took place, cannot imagine a time where culture could be passed along via the Internet and its social networks and its memes. But it was. The Iron Curtain was permeable. In 1968, a new leadership took over Czechoslovakia, and liberalization was no longer incremental. It was open and ecstatic. Jan Jemek, often called the enfant terrible of Czech cinema because he fought with everybody, especially the censors, and also because his cinematic style was more avant-garde than his colleagues, began filming a documentary oratorio for Prague, hoping to capture on film the glorious summer days when the country stepped out from under totalitarianism. With his camera and crew, he roamed the streets of the Czech capital and out into the countryside. He filmed the beautiful young people of Prague, faces painted, trousers striped, flower-print summer dresses draped over slim shoulders. The kids looked like they could have been walking down Carnaby Street or dancing in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. In America, we were living the opposite of the Prague Spring. We were living the assassination spring. 
Prague, a place none of us had visited, seemed to be doing everything right. Too often politics was a slogan for us. Socialism with a human face was a nice one. On August 21st, 1968, I was in the teletype room at WUHY radio station in Philadelphia. My job that summer was to monitor the wire reports clacking off the teletype machine and distribute them to the handful of reporters who worked in the newsroom. An alert chuntered by. Soviet tanks enter Prague. I ripped the report off the machine and raced to the newsroom, just like in a movie, and handed the news around. In Prague that day, Niemek was filming in the streets as the tanks rumbled in. No one knew they were coming. His crew was warned off as they filmed the scenes. They kept filming. One of his cameramen had his jaw shot away. Niemek managed to smuggle the raw footage out to Austria. It was the only news footage of the event, and it was shown all over the world. And that was the end. In addition to terror and violence, totalitarian governments sustain themselves by controlling language. The period of what the authorities called normalization began. Dubček was relieved of his post. The Czech New Wave miracle came to a screeching halt, although a year later, one of the senior cultural bureaucrats plaintively asked Yuri Menzel, how can we, we, win another Oscar? In 1974, Yemek was summoned by the authorities and they gave him a choice. Stay, and we'll throw you in prison, or leave. Well, what would you do? He chose exile and ended up in the West, supporting himself as a wedding videographer. Milos Forman and Ivan Passer had already chosen voluntary exile in America and built good careers. Forman spectacularly so. It's hard to admit, even half a century later, but 1968 did not herald a new dawn. If anything, it marks the beginning of a terrible period of reaction. Normalization, to borrow a concept. By 1980, the normalization process was completed in America. Ronald Reagan was elected president. A few months after Reagan was inaugurated, a film opened in New York called Cutter and Bone. It was directed by Yvonne Passer. No one knew anything about it. The studio barely publicized it. It was only by chance I was in the city that week and saw it. The one-sentence summary would be, it was a whodunit thriller about two amateur sleuths, one a Vietnam veteran, trying to solve a murder in the upscale town of Santa Barbara, California. But that isn't what the film is about. It was about everything that was good and bad about 1968. The immature belief that ideals alone could make a better world, that righteous rhetoric could make authority change its ways, that madness was a revolutionary force. Once again, Ivan Passer had slipped one past the authorities. Today the film stands as the truest record of what it meant to be young and surging to the barricades in 1968, and it's probably the last true film of the Czech New Wave. Two decades after the Prague Spring, the whirligig of time finally came around again, and the communist regime, in what would only be for a few more years, Czechoslovakia, collapsed. In the autumn of 1989 came the Velvet Revolution, and in that country, at least, the period of normalization came to an end. In the euphoria, no one thought there would be one more cosmic joke played on the men and women of the new wave but there was. 
1990, a cold gray day standing on the Charles Bridge in Prague. Steven Soderbergh is directing his second film, Kafka. He's part of a rush of Western filmmakers heading to the country. I'm standing slightly behind him, trying to surreptitiously record his directing instructions to Jeremy Irons, the star of the film. They're not pleased. I'm making a radio feature. Like a lot of people who were in love with the idea of Prague because of Czech New Wave films, I have found a reason to visit. I'm reporting about the cultural dividend coming to the country. I spend the day at Barandov's studio. It's fallen into Soviet-style disrepair. I meet studio execs already talking the talk of the deal. Big-budget productions like Kafka will provide the cash flow to repair the studio. The cosmic joke was that freedom wasn't free. Where once a Czech filmmaker needed only to sneak his script past the censor and then the state would pick up the production cost, in the new era, a filmmaker needed to find money. Lots and lots of money from banks and private investors to get a film off the ground. And even then, there was no going back to Barandov. The studio became a hub of Western film production. Their rates went up accordingly. Czech filmmakers couldn't afford to shoot there. But in the months after the Velvet Revolution, no one knew this would be their fate. Too much happiness around. Some months after the communist regime fell, American novelist Philip Roth, who had been instrumental in getting the work of Czech writers like Milan Kundera to a wider readership during the years of normalization, went to visit and breathe the heady air of freedom and diesel fumes in Prague. Roth came across a group of people watching footage of a Communist Party meeting from the last days of the regime on a jumbo television screen. They were laughing and jeering. Roth wrote, I thought this must be the highest purpose of laughter, to bury wickedness in ridicule. Nothing sums up the aesthetic of the Czech New Wave better. And in retrospect, burying wickedness in ridicule may have been the most successful tactic we used at the barricades in 1968. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots more, at the website www.goldfarbpod.com. Please visit. While you're there, you can make a donation to keep these podcasts coming. Thanks.